Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students. Coming up on today's show, Dr. Robert Arsisi, creator of the documentary film A Lion in the House. Just because you are unlucky enough to get such a catastrophic disease does not mean that society should turn away from you. And it shouldn't be about whether you have health care insurance. That was Dr. Robert Arsisi. More from him about pediatric cancer patients and the variety of different obstacles that they have to overcome while dealing with their illnesses coming up on Radio Rounds right now. Welcome to Radio Rounds. Welcome to Radio Rounds, everyone. I'm John Corker. And I'm Yojin Patel. Thanks for joining us today, whether you're tuning in live or listening to our podcast sometime in the future. Radio Rounds is the nation's first medical show created and hosted entirely by medical students. And our goal each week is to share with you today's most interesting medical stories while always focusing on the humanism and empathy in the medical profession. And our featured guest for today is Dr. Robert Arsisi, the current director of pediatric oncology at the Johns Hopkins University Medical School. Dr. Arsisi is also the creator of a documentary film, A Lion in the House, released in 2006. And and that film was produced locally in Cincinnati uh, and is actually Emmy Award winning. It's won quite a few awards in different film festivals all over the country. And as you'll hear in our interview with Dr. Arsisi today, there are a lot of social and ethical issues that are brought up and analyzed in the video that we talk about in our curriculum. Dr. Arsisi received his medical degree from the University of Rochester and completed his residency at the Children's Hospital in Boston, currently ranked the number one children's hospital in the nation. Not only a practicing physician and leading researcher in pediatric cancer therapy, he has also authored hundreds of articles, reviews, and textbooks, and is currently serving as the editor-in-chief in Pediatric Blood and Cancer magazine. Our very own Teresa Lee started off by asking Dr. RCC where he received his inspiration for the Emmy Award-winning documentary, A Lion in the House. So I first got the idea of doing this type of movie after watching a documentary when I was in Boston at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Boston Children's Hospital. I saw the movie Hoop Dreams and immediately that night wrote down what I felt should be a script for a movie about catastrophic disease and particularly one that we were quite familiar with and that was childhood cancer. But really it was a disease, um, it was going to be, I hoped, a a true documentary, not an advertisement, but a, a true documentary that would approach the important topics of um, healthcare disparities. In Hoop Dreams, they, um, there's a, a, a lot of discussion of exploitation of um, um, inner city African Americans in terms of sports and those types of things. And it just struck me that um, healthcare disparities, and this was a long time ago, of course, before that became so terribly apparent that this would be an important topic. In addition, I wanted to have a movie that would develop the themes of um, how people adapt 
to truly catastrophic diseases that they have really no control over um, getting. Um, I wanted to then also have this documentary approach topics such as clinical trials and what those were all about in clinical research, clinical training and, and the training of young physicians and, and how does that fit in. Importantly, we also wanted to look at the issues of end of life questions and how people decide on which path to take. And at, at some level, I also wanted this movie to demonstrate how decisions were made and, and really how often the decisions by which the, the data upon which decisions are made can be very low in number and, and very small. And in fact, judgment and experience play a big role in that. And I think it's not as many people think is that physicians often have a very clear answer as to what the best path should be. So I wrote out this entire script and then looked for filmmakers and for many years looked and could not find anybody in the Boston area while I was there. And then I happened to move to Ohio. And it was during my time in Ohio that I saw another documentary one night. Um, I don't just watch documentaries, but it just so happened that these two um, films um, had a huge impact on me. And the second documentary was one called Personal Belongings about a father in the Hungarian Revolution as told by his son, the filmmaker. And at the end of that film, the, I noted that the filmmaker um, was named Stephen Bognar, and I believe the person who did the sound for that movie or produced it, um, it's been so long now, was um, a wonderful lady who I got to know was Julia Reichardt. I did not know that they um, were, in fact, partners in life, but I did find out after looking at the credits that Stephen was a uh, professor of film at Antioch College, and um, Julia was a professor of film at Wright State. And so after um, a call and um, extensive discussions, I thought these two people had to be the right people. They were close by, and um, they may, had made personal belongings, which I loved. And I thought this, these two had to be the people who do this movie. And so after talking with them, it was quite um, clear that they really didn't want to make such a movie initially, I think, because um, Julia's uh, daughter was, in fact, a survivor of Hodgkin lymphoma. And it was a very difficult thing to want to think about going back into that world. But after more discussions, um, thank God, they um, both decided that they would jump into this um, project. I don't think they or we realized that it would be such an involved project. But I think this whole decision tree just shows you that oh, uh, certainly persistence um, after getting an idea really does help if you really think it's important and you stick with it. Eventually, if it has legs, you'll find the right people to, um, to do and work with you on a project. I made it very clear to Julia and Steve right from the beginning that I had no um, skills at making films and that in the end we would only help them, but that, they, that this would be their film. And I think um, that's how we moved from that point on after we got permission from the hospital to film within the hospital, um, which was precarious at times. I think many hospitals are very reluctant to have that level of exposure. But um, in the end, um, the hospital came around, and um, I think in all regards, it worked out exceptionally well from all perspectives. 
you mentioned before about how the film emphasizes health disparities and how that can affect both patient outcome and family experiences. How did you go about choosing those particular families that you highlighted in A Line in the House? Uh, yes. So we picked the um, families based upon relatively randomly picking um, six families initially, each of which had a, a child um, who had cancer. And um, because I tend to see more patients with hematologic malignancies than solid tumors, it just so happened that I, know, I knew six families, um, some of which I knew um, were economically in a better shape than others. And I also thought that each of them had different family structures. So we asked them. One family dropped out very quickly, and the others stayed in to this, um, stayed with this project for filming for five to six years, followed by several years of editing before the movie finally came out. There are vastly different outcomes for each of the families. Can you elaborate on what you think are the most important non-medical factors which affect outcomes in childhood cancers? Being a uh, physician scientist, I tend to think that much of the outcome is based upon um, the biology of the disease and, of course, the biology of the um, patient and the combination and, ex and interactions of those two things in, in terms of the treatments we give. Nevertheless, there are issues that come up that can impact upon outcome. For instance, compliance with um, medications, as um, you saw in the film, uh, Tim had really difficult problems taking his medicines in a um, inconsistent fashion, which doesn't necessarily mean that was because of the fact that he was in, um, from a poor family, but that he was a teenager, and a lot of times compliance in teenagers um, is a real issue in terms of medication. So yes, those kinds of adaptive abilities of, of patients can have a huge impact. Justin you know, was also, uh, he had this disease, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, from when he was a young child, and then through his teenage years, lived with relapse after relapse. And so, you know, even though they were terribly compliant with treatments, his disease was overwhelmingly resistant. And eventually, um, I think his really compelling story shows the chronicity of um, some of these diseases now that is turning what should be a acute disease and or cure into really one of, of chronicity. So I think that certainly socioeconomic status may have some impact, um, psychological adaption and acceptance and compliance with therapy is likely to have, they are likely to have an impact as well on the um, outcome. But it is always astonished, astonishing to me and how poor we are at predicting who will survive and who will not survive. In the documentary, we see hospital staff trying to deal with the issues associated with patient and family socioeconomic status. What role do you think medical professionals should play in trying to surpass those hurdles? The um, ability of society to overcome such socioeconomic problems I would say is not great. The healthcare system is not um, is not there 
um, very effectively to help with these sorts of things. Um, I think that it became very clear. I think that hospitals do the very best they can to help patients with some transportation issues, with the cost of drugs, but nobody has this down um, very well. And I think that one of the major issues, if anything, that this movie can still, even though it's not a brand new movie right now, um, but still speak so strongly to the current healthcare debates that are ongoing, is that just because you are unlucky enough to get such a catastrophic disease does not mean that society should turn away from you. And it shouldn't be about whether you have health care insurance. It should be about the ability of a society to take care of its members. And I think we have not dealt with that very effectively yet in this country. There are programs that help. But, you know, one of the things that always was astonishing to me was that um, was, which I think was portrayed beautifully by Tim's story, was that just getting to and from the hospital was a really big deal. So you ask a taxi to show up at 10 o'clock, and you know they because your appointment's at 11 o'clock, and they show up at 10 minutes of 11 because that's when they show up, and or you end up having to leave the hospital and take a bus or a taxi back to your home and they may or may not be on time, they may not be as comfortable and you're feeling the effects of chemotherapy and not feeling very well. And so you make it home but you think, man, do I really want to do this again in a week? And so things I suspect do at times get delayed or missed and our systems are not so effective at dealing with the extremes of um, backgrounds of patients, I'm afraid. For instance, pediatric hospitals do a much better job at this, I think, than most other um, hospitals that take care of just um, adults, in that most pediatric hospitals have wards according to ages and the capacities of their patients. Um, Most adult hospitals are hospitals for adults, and that may mean a 20-year-old or a 98-year-old. And I don't think our healthcare system has truly addressed all of the issues of um, age and ability and what goes into taking care of a 98 versus 20-year-old adult patient. And so we have so much to learn. And I think this movie brilliantly spoke to some of those um, discrepancies of care and the challenges that we face. The movie does not provide answers per se. And I think those answers need to come from hard discussions, but um, truly um, compassionate policies that, by the way, are affordable if done right. You mentioned previously that it has been a couple of years since the documentary has debuted. Do you think that there has been any improvement in the care, both medical and non-medical, for these children? Have things improved? Well, I think some things may have, in fact, improved, but there is still an enormous gap. I think areas are being more acknowledged now are the efforts that are going on in appropriate palliative care. And um, while some people may not like that word, um, another approach to saying this might be um, transitional care, end-of-life care. Um, I think that there are more programs helping to train 
um, junior physicians and fellows and um, in the areas of pain control of um, what the family needs are during those periods of time rather than active curative um, portions of the um, treatment approach. There is more sensitivity towards that and many hospitals have adapted um, end-of-life or transitional care or palliative care teams, um, although this is certainly uh, not universal and hospitals are not doing yet, I think, the job that needs to be done in terms of completely linking up with um, hospice or out-of-hospital end-of-life issues. There's still a great challenge there while there are many very dedicated people who are trying to improve that. So I think that area has improved some. I do not think that um, equal universal coverage has um, come anywhere near the level that it needs to, and so it is still very difficult for people to um, get, I think, the same care that you would if um, you had more resources, for instance, more socioeconomic resources. And I think this area is one that still needs a great deal of, um, of effort. I still worry that the public does not truly understand the challenges of decision-making when it comes to such complex problems. But I think the medical profession has also probably contributed to that misconception, in a sense, um, placing um, physicians and caretakers maybe in a, um, on a pedestal that's a little bit higher than they need to be. So we're getting better. There's no question in my mind, but I think some of these major challenges remain problematic. When patients can't, for instance, afford outpatient medicines, when insurance companies, for instance, are regulating whether a patient has to stay in the hospital to get a piece of, um, to get care for a drug that they could just as easily get as an outpatient, or is outpatient um, management going to be um, allowed in a way that would be conducive to good patient care? huge challenges still. So as a hematologist, oncologist, or even intensive care unit doctors or child abuse specialists, you see these patients on a continual basis and there are times when treatments don't work and there are times when treatments work really well, but how do you avoid getting burnt out? Having a level of burnout to me is um, quite a fascinating question as I always try to tell junior physicians and fellows, if you want to be in this business, you really only have three choices to make. You can get really depressed by the death and the suffering. You can get um, completely, as we would say, completely pissed off and irritated by the whole process and be very ineffective in that anger and thirdly, which I think is the only rational choice, truly, is that you can try to get smarter and do something about it. It's because of those tragedies that I think it should stimulate us to get smarter. And I think that's what most of people in um, certainly oncology and certainly in pediatric oncology feel so strongly about. I think I'm always surprised by how little burnout there is. People move on in their careers but I'm not so sure it's because they, um, are, they cannot take the pain and suffering anymore. I think they are committed to making improvements in those areas. There are always exceptions. I have known colleagues who, you know, after a certain patient may have died, 
they've just said, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. And I've seen some colleagues walk away and never go back, but it's a small number. And I'm not saying they're, they're making the decision because they're weak emotionally or anything like that. There are often limits to what any um, physician can uh, take. I just think that limit is enormous in, the, um, in terms of people who take care of uh, patients with such uh, catastrophic illnesses. Once again, that was Dr. Robert R.C.C., Director of Pediatric Oncology at the Johns Hopkins University Medical School. We just want to say a quick thanks to him for joining us on the show today. We really enjoyed our conversation with him. Uh, but clearly, he brought up some very heavy issues, some very heavy social and ethical issues uh, in his discussion about the movie. Uh, one of the biggest issues that he brought up, Yojin, uh, was all of these external factors outside of the hospital that affect patients' ability to uh, not only comply with their doctor's you know, prescribed treatment regimens, but also just with their ability to heal physically and emotionally. What struck me was that, you know, in medicine, as doctors, you think of, okay, you're going to treat a patient, you're going to have all these treatment plans, and they're going to work, um, but you don't necessarily sometimes think about the patient and their background, their status in society, um, whether they can afford those medications, whether they can get to the therapy in time. You know, a lot of people, like Dr. Arsici was saying, they might depend on cabs, and cabs might not get you there in time, and they might, you know, make you late, or they might not even show up sometimes. And as physicians in medicine, you don't think about that sometimes, and that's what he's trying to bring forth in this documentary. Right, and I think it. we've brought this theme up on the show so many times before, but it's easy to slip into the old paradigm of trying to treat diseases rather than focusing on our true goal of healing people. You know, each of our patients is a very unique, dynamic human being with a variety of different personality traits and environmental factors that are going to affect, you know, how they can heal. And, and as physicians, it's our job to help them heal in every way possible. So we need to be more cognizant of all those different factors that go into the process. And going along with that, you know, Dr. Arsici spoke a little about the changes that have occurred, you know, after the documentary. He also mentioned that he hasn't really seen that many drastic changes. John, what do you think could be some changes that hospitals or physician offices could make to, you know, better help patients with their socioeconomic status or even with their timing of these things? Well, that's a great question, Eugene, and, and it's a very difficult one. If it were easy, I think it maybe one that had been solved since the time that this film came out in 2006. Uh, but I think we need to kind of broaden our scope a little bit beyond just the hospitals and the doctor's offices. You know, there are a lot of different um, entities that go into the process of, of producing drugs and producing uh, machines that we use for CT scans and MRIs and whatnot. Um, and we need to start working more in kind of a team effort with all of these entities to be able to help patients afford the care that they need. Um, for example, there, a lot of people know right now there's this huge drug shortage all over the country um, because a lot of drug companies are choosing to no longer produce certain cheaper generic drugs that are in wide use across the country because they're not as profitable. And so the, the small amount of stores that are still left of these drugs all over the country are being stockpiled by certain parties and then sold off at prices, you know, two, three, four, five hundred times the price that they used to be. Um, sold off for. And so a lot of times doctors are using second line and third line medications that aren't as good uh, for some of these patients and not as effective and sometimes more expensive. 
But Yojin, before we dis- close our discussion on this topic, one thing we found interesting was that this documentary focused specifically on children with cancer mm-hmm. um, and p- kind of pulls at your heartstrings, uh, specifically that it deals with children. Do you think that viewers or society would be as empathetic um, or as understanding of adults with terminal cancer who are dealing with a lot of these same issues? Or, or do you think that kind of... Um, aspect of children being born into certain situations, um, maybe seeming very helpless, uh, was kind of uh, intentional to, to, to pound home a point mm-hmm. uh, uh, with, with the viewers of the video. Right. And that's, an, that's a very interesting question that you asked. And, you know, I, I do believe that if it were adults, there's so much more that we know about adult medicine as opposed to, you know, pediatric or uh, children uh, medicine um, that, it necessarily wouldn't pull at the same heartstrings. Mm-hmm. Um, it might, you know, it, it will be sad, but as a child who's vulnerable, who's born into the situation is much different than an adult. Sometimes people think the adults led themselves into that situation, but mm-hmm. sometimes they didn't, you know? So there's a lot of controversy with whether it's the patient's fault or not. As opposed to children, you know, it's never the children's fault or, you know, most likely right. it's not the child's fault that they're in that situation. So I think it would be different if there was an adult documentary. They couldn't necessarily play off of the same impact as uh, A Line in the House did. Sure. And the reason I bring that up is I just uh, think it's important to remember that no patients, regardless of their age, choose cancer or, right. or really choose you know any disease like cancer. All of us, all of our patients have very unique circumstances. And I think the point brought home by this interview and, and this video is um, as future physicians, uh, we need to, to take that unique and, and dynamic aspect of each patient into account and incorporate that into our treatment plans for them. Most definitely. So with that, we just want to say a big thanks once again to our featured guest, Dr. Robert Arsisi. Uh, we'd also like to thank Dr. Ashley Fernandez, the medical ethics professor at the Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine, for providing uh, Teresa Lee with direction in interviewing Dr. Arsisi. And make sure to tune in next week where our, our featured guest is Dr. Sharon Sherlock, the director of Reach Out Dayton, which is a free clinic here in Dayton. We're going to talk a little bit about the work that they do and the importance of the treatment that they provide for Dayton locals who don't have health insurance. And of course, you can tune in every Sunday at noon on WWSU 106.9 FM and Sundays at midnight on WYSO 91.3. And as always, you can listen live on RadioRounds.org. On our website, be sure to check out this week's Writing Round segment by our very own Lakshman Swami, titled Patients Are People, where Lakshman describes a powerful experience from his pre-med days. Writing Rounds is a place for any of our listeners and contributors to provide their own opinions on medicine and healthcare. You can contact Radio Rounds via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All that information is on RadioRounds.org, where you can now listen to all the past episodes on demand. These podcasts are also available as free downloads on iTunes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds. And now we'd like to take a minute to thank and credit all those who made today's show possible. The American Medical Association's MedPlus Advantage Insurance Program is teaming up with Radio Rounds and Timmy Global Health to bring you Take a Trip with Timmy, an essay and video contest for interested students. The winner will spend two to three weeks working with Timmy Global Health medical teams and Timmy partner organizations in either Ecuador or Guatemala. As part of the prize package, the winning student will receive a free iPad 2 and digital underwater GPS camera. They'll also have an opportunity to blog each day about healthcare in the developing world while in their country. 
Submissions will be accepted in December 2011, and the winner will be selected and notified in early 2012. Stay tuned for more rules and details, and in the meantime, you can always check out more at www.takeatripwithtimmy.com. The Student Doctor Network is proud to be partnered with Radio Rounds. Visit SDN online at studentdoctor.net. Is an application to medical school in your future? Learn tips for admission success in the new second edition of the Student Doctor Network Medical School Admissions Guide, available now in paperback and electronic formats through the SDN bookstore at studentdoctor.net. And thanks to our producers, Shami Das, Sarah Buckingham, and Yojin Patel, as well as our entire team who works so hard here each week at the Radio Rounds World Headquarters to bring you brand new episodes. And of course, the biggest thanks of all to all you out there listening. Please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds or the Wright State University Boonshop School of Medicine. So join us next week or download our next podcast and be sure to check out RadioRounds.org for more information. Have a great week, everyone. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm John Corker. And I'm Yojin Patel. And one day, we'll, we'll be, be your doctors. Welcome to Radio Rounds. 